0: Hey everybody, welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Sutras here, very excited about today's show. Denny O'Neill is back. Denny is going to be at Terrificon on Sunday, the 19th, at Mohegan Sun, and I hope you get a chance to meet him, and also hopefully uh, purchase his new novel that came out earlier this year. The book is called The Perils of Captain Mighty and the Redemption of Danny the Kid. It's uh, partially autobiographical, it's also... Uh, A little fictional to uh, protect the innocent, if you will. Denny is very candid. uh, During uh, a lot of his comic book career, Uh, he battled alcoholism. He talks about that briefly in today's conversation. Um, We talked a lot about his book in our last conversation. Our first talk, we talked a lot about the question. And I kind of felt, man, let's talk Batman. We've never really sat down and had a chance to really talk about Batman. And this is our chance. Uh, Great stuff about when Denny was writing the nightfall novelization great stuff about the famous story and legends of the dark night that he wrote called venom we talk a lot about the nightfall event and uh, when denny first got hired by dc some stuff about green lantern and green arrow the hard traveling heroes and uh, lots of really interesting stuff about various stories how denny's real life might have influenced some of the things he wrote about of course speedy's addiction that we read about in green lantern and green arrow is covered as well so uh, i really can't tell you how much i appreciate denny's time and insight in uh, his own writings and uh, also about the comic book business we get a lot into what it was like in the silver age and bronze age not only at dc and marvel but also even at charlton comics as well and that charlton talk is going to continue in another interview that's coming up with paul Kupperberg. So as I said on uh, social media, uh, with Roy Thomas's interview last week, Denny's this week, I really feel like I've had an opportunity to get first-hand knowledge of some comic book history from the guys who lived it. And Denny O'Neill is certainly one of those guys. It's great to have him back on today's Word Balloon. Word Balloon is brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you very much for your support, League, through uh, subscriptions at Patreon. If you'd like to subscribe to Word Balloon, if you're a listener and you enjoy the conversation I try to bring you each month, Man, I'll tell you, we had a hell of a July, and August looks like it's going to be equally great. Not only, as I've said recently, uh, some of the uh, classic creators that I've had the opportunity to talk to, but a lot of current people as well are coming up in the days and weeks ahead. And uh, the people that help make it possible through subscriptions to Word Balloon are the League of Word Balloon listeners. Do you think Word Balloon is worth a dollar a month? Do you think it's worth the price of a comic book a month? If you do and would like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash balloon. Or go to wordballoon.com and click on the Patreon ad. Thank you very much, League of Word Balloon listeners. Full transparency, you've heard the Terrificon ads. I'm going to be at Terrificon uh, in just two weeks now, really under two weeks. The 17th through the 19th at Mohegan Sun in Connecticut. I'm telling you, this is a great show. All you have to do is go to Terrificon.com and check out the lineup. So many great current and past greats are going to be there. Amazing celebrities. The Fonz is going to be there. Daniel from the Karate Kid, uh, the great actor Ralph Macchio is gonna be there. Uh, Danny O'Neill, Roy Thomas, Paul Cupperberg, uh, so many great writers and artists. Also current stars like Nick Spencer, Charles Soule, C.B. um Christopher Priest, Afua Richardson, Sarah Richard, my buddies Art and Franco. It's gonna be a great time, and uh, it, it makes up for the fact that I wasn't able to go to Comic-Con this year. And very, very excited to be there. I'm going to be doing eight panels over the weekend. A couple on Friday, a couple on Saturday, and a couple on Sunday. So, uh, again, full disclosure, that's why we've got the ad for Terrificon. And that's why we've been getting so many great classic creators in the last couple weeks. And that will continue leading up right to through to Terrificon. And, of course, the panels will be featured on Word Balloon episodes after the show. So with all that in mind, I wanted to remind you that uh, it's a great time to advertise on Word Balloon, great content, and uh, Word Balloon reaches a wide national, in fact, worldwide audience that I think would find your geek culture products or related industries uh, worth uh, hearing and uh, hearing about. So if you have any interest in advertising on Word Balloon, now is the time. You can email me at john at wordballoon.com and we can start a conversation. Reasonable rates and uh, great content. To put your ads on, so consider advertising on Word Balloon in the days and weeks ahead. Okay, without further ado, let's get into our conversation now with the great Denny O'Neill. Wonderful to speak with him. Uh, he had a really rough year last year. He lost his uh, wife, Mary Fran. We talked about it in our previous conversation, and um, but he is on the mend. And he has uh, this excellent book that he is uh, promoting. And uh, some of those uh, troubles that he was dealing with at the end of last year and the beginning of this year kind of kept him from being able to promote the book. So I'm very excited that he will have copies at Terrificon. Hit him up. He's going to be there on Sunday, the 19th of August, at Terrificon at Mohegan Sun. And uh, this is a great chance again. And also, it's available digitally on Amazon. And, uh, you know, uh, so by all means, seek it out. It's a really, really great memoir of his life and career. So let's get into it now with Denny O'Neill on Word Balloon. If you're ready, we'll dive in. Welcome back, Denny O'Neill, to Word Balloon. As I was just telling you off the air, it's a pleasure to have you back, and I appreciate your clarity of memory and your stories. How are things going in terms of, last time we spoke, you had released your semi-autobiography, half-fiction, half-true-tales, and uh, how's the response been? Uh,
1: that, <laughs> that book is the best-kept secret since the invasion of Normandy. Oh, man.
0: I'm assuming you're going to have the autobiography with you for Terrificon to, for people to buy and sign,
1: I hope. I guess I am. I They only gave me 10 comps and. Uh, I pretty much gave all those away, so I, I bought 15 more copies. I do have some copies. Great. Uh, I don't know what to do about that book. Um, I don't know even what I think about it. If you want to save yourself five years' worth of psychotherapy, write an autobiographical novel because the the feedback I have gotten, people remember things I I didn't even know about because I did them in blackouts and a lot of them are pretty bad, pretty ugly. Uh, but I had no memory of them until I get reminded and then I realized God, I could I, I was a prick, I could have been a monster.
0: Yeah, and then facing those kind of, you know past behavior and stuff, yeah, that's got to be humbling or is it because again these are memories that were blank that they are kind of surprising and i don't know how how do you process that
1: you face them and uh my ex-girlfriend has filled in a lot of blanks my brother dave uh and my brother tom have filled in a lot of the blanks i it was worse than i thought uh, I don't quite know how I got through that without really damaging myself. but I did, and I don't know why some people are able to turn that corner and other people aren't, I didn't plan for the, the novel I wrote to be as much about drinking as it was, but if you're trying to write about that time, in the history of comics and you're trying to do it from one viewpoint, it's very hard. I mean, without completely making the whole thing up out of whole cloth, it's very hard to not acknowledge those things. So, oh, 40% of the way through the book I said, well, this is a it's not worth fighting. I will simply tell a story and we'll, we'll see where it goes.
0: I wonder if when you were writing things like that famous Green Lantern, Green Arrow story about Speedy's addiction, mm-hmm. how much of it, you know, did, uh, were you in a place that you could, you know, write about a, that kind of addiction? And were you in denial of your own Issues or you know, where was it in the in the context of, of your drinking? Did it inform that story at all?
1: It probably did. Uh, there is a couple of panels very early on in the continuity in which they they mention that alcoholism is another form of addiction. I was at a point where I was getting drunk. Five or six nights a week. I now know that I was violent and ugly a lot of that time. Wow. Uh, but nobody was calling me an alcoholic yet. My mother went to her grave without putting my name and the word alcohol in the same sentence.
0: And what years were these? What 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 decades were these that this was happening?
1: This is mostly the seventies. Wow. I mean, the, the, the novel started out as something very different than what it ended up as. And what I wanted to do was tell the story of how comics came of age. Yeah. Uh, my son was twisting one arm, and uh, I guess Mary friend was twisting the other, and they kept saying, you should like your story. And I objected to that, but I finally agreed if I could combine it with a fantasy and uh, not have any of my self-imposed rules, it would be an interesting thing to try. It's writing a novel the way we were taught in college. Novels are written, and they're mostly not written that way. But, you know, sit down, wait for the angel of inspiration to light on your shoulder and whisper in your ear and then make it up as you go along. (laughs) I've written about 10 novels, only two that I make up as I was going along. And one, if I had my way, every single copy of that book in the world would vanish, would suddenly evaporate because I certainly don't want anybody to read it who hasn't already, and it does have my name on the cover. That was... Well, it was a a pretty easy job to do, and I did have the experience of writing a novel, writing a science fiction novel. When that was completed and published, I realized, I am now a science fiction writer. I have published a book that has been marketed as science fiction, and I don't know what an atom is. <laughs> so I tried to fill in that huge gap in my education. I mean, I went to St. Louis, and if you were an English major, you didn't take any science courses. You weren't allowed to. Okay. But it occurred to me, and I was right, that anybody who lives in our time in our era should know some science, especially if you're going to presume to write about it. So there was a book called One Who Pre Infinity that was a popularization of Einstein's theories, And that book was a huge help and a good start. And then now I've, I've got Probably a hundred college courses on disk across the room there, and maybe 20-25 percent of them have to do with science and math. I still can't do math, but I I, I find science fascinating. Uh, there's an item in the Gannett paper this morning about how our galaxy ate another galaxy. Wow. Yeah. You know, yeah, I mean, I find that stuff really cool. Sure. Prior,
0: prior to that um, exploration of science, do you feel that your writing was more space opera then in, in terms of science fiction?
1: Well, no, I didn't think about it very much. I, one of the secrets of being a professional writer of the time that I am is don't burden yourself with being an author or don't, don't carry into the job. A lot of expectations. If I can get an editor and say, we need this by the 25th, it has to be 75,000 words. Uh, and that gives me some problems to solve. Okay. I know I can solve problems. Uh, I don't operate the way my son does. He is very scrupulous about getting every syllable right. Uh, I'm not. I think it's a job. And if I start thinking about, well, I'm I'm competing with Alfred Bester here. I'm competing <laughs> with Isaac Asimov. I'll be paralyzed. I'm not as good as those people. I never will be or never was. Uh So if I think about it the way I used to think about newspaper work, the press thing he's going to press the red button at 10 o'clock. My story has to be on there, on the press. Yep. That I can handle. When I have a book to write, I do simple long division. I can do that much math. Beyond (laughs) that, I'm lost. But if I have 100 days, to do this and it has to be a hundred thousand words. That's how long I've got. That's how much I have to do every day. in the first hardcover I was in a bad car crash in the middle of writing it. This was Batman retires. The 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 first really major continuity we did, uh nightfall it was called. And uh I had to kind of alter my method for three weeks. I couldn't write or do any work, but we made it. Charlie Kostman and I spent the last weekend sitting in my bedroom in Brooklyn uh, going over the manuscript and editing it there and then. It had to be on the presses by noon Monday. This was Friday. Charlie and I spent the weekend editing that book, and we made the deadline. Uh, Charlie gets huge thanks. Uh, He is one of the best editors I've ever had. And uh, the book, given all the handicaps that there were in getting the thing done, one of which was we knew we were going to do this novelization, and I didn't know that there was going to be any BBC adaptation, but I knew that there would be comic books and other stuff, and the deadline would be non-negotiable. So, But I said, I, I'm i writing two or three comic books a month. I'm editing a franchise uh, that are only 24 hours in a day. I can't I can't manage this. There just isn't enough time. And Mary Fran said, if you let somebody else do this, you'll never forgive yourself. And I said, well, you know, when you put it like that, you're absolutely right. So every Saturday morning, Mary Fran and I would get in the car and go out to the end of Brooklyn to a shopping mall meet Charlie Kochman. I would give him the work I had done in the past six days. He edited as he went along. And then, as I said, we did the final rewrites and edits really under the gun. Mary Fran bringing in cookies and coffee every five or six hours. And we got through it. I am delighted that I had that experience. And I never want to do anything like that again. <laughs> I bought a computer. I bought a, a laptop computer. I hadn't used any computers up to that point. But driving to St. Louis, uh, we both got sleepy. Mary Pran and I, after lunch, I had been driving, and I told her, you, "You've got to take it. You've got to do this. I can't keep my eyes open." He said, I can't either. I'll tell you what. You drive for the first hour, and then I'll take it. We hit a wall doing 70 in the middle of that hour. So uh, we spent Christmas Day in in an intensive care ward in a little mountain town in Pennsylvania. Jesus. And uh, understand, I had the book about 40% done. The car, I'm told by people who saw the accident, flipped over three times, and the computer was loose in the back seat. So we got put into an intensive care ward, and the doctor asked what he could do for me, and I said, go out to wherever the what's left of the car is and get my computer. Wow. The computer was fine, no, no glitches. I I should have written Apple a thank you letter because <laughs> did that as a hardcover, and it we knew it was going to be a big deal. In fact, sure. we sort of set out to do a big deal Batman project. What I didn't know was that over across the corridor. Mike Carlin was doing something very similar with Superman. Same thing. He dies. Yes. Comes back. Yeah. So I eventually went to Paul and said, why didn't you tell me that Mike was doing this? Because we have two stories going at the same time. Uh, we're getting one year's benefit out of this. We could have gotten two years. And he said, no. I did that deliberately because we want to tell the fans, hey, look at these things. Stuff is really happening over there, all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if he was right or wrong, but he did have, as always with Paul, he has reasons, and they're generally good ones.
0: It piqued my interest. I mean, I, I was certainly re- reading both stories, and that's interesting because I thought that Nightfall almost was inspired by the Superman doomsday and Death of Superman story. So that's interesting. In that typical way that sometimes it's just in the it's in the atmosphere. And you guys independently were both thinking along the same lines. That's pretty interesting. And I don't think a lot of people knew that. Pretty amazing.
1: No, I'm I'm sure that a lot of people thought I too did, but I was following in Mike's footsteps. And if you know how publishing worked, it wasn't possible for me to follow in, follow in his footsteps because we had the same lead time. We had the same deadline. Sure.
0: Wow. Nightfall really was, I think, a, 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 tr- a terrific story. And was it in response to the uh, things that were happening at Image and those more extreme superheroes that you know those guys that left marvel were doing on their own
1: no uh i i know about those guys uh image sent their uh, their whole company up to drop in on dc and make a visit and at least i and i think some of my colleagues thought well they're uh, you know, coming to make peace with us, and that they were, they were telling us they were going into competition with us, which they did very successfully for a few years. Mm-hmm. But what happened with us is, I guess, my primary concern was always storytelling, and I realized that I had the freedom. To do a 2,000-word story with a character who it has been estimated would be recognized by 80% of the people on the planet. And I thought, this is a rare gift they are giving me as a storyteller. Uh, I can actually do this. I don't know if we can bring it off, but I know that nobody will stop me from trying. So... We had done the Robin dies, yes, story, and I thought that sends a message to the readers, the, the loyal readers, that uh, we are not above killing Batman. So we were at a retreat very close to where I'm sitting. I didn't know about Mayac, but it's across the river from Terrytown. And we realized if we're going to kill, make the world think that Batman is dead, it's a pretty big step to take. I better get permission. So, either one of my assistants or I called New York every 90 minutes or so and explained what we were going to do, and said, you know, it's not too late. We're, we've plotted the next six months, but it's not too late to change. If, if, is it going to be any problem with this? Tell me. And I got all the go-aheads I needed. So cut to three months later, and we're into the story. And I'm crossing a lobby from the build- at the building where DC had its headquarters. And I run into an executive who tells me I have to bring Batman back to life. And I try to explain, well, if nobody reads any. Batman this year, and they pick it up in a year, they won't know that anything has happened. We're going to put all the pieces back where you would like them to be. Didn't make any difference. So I had to compromise our story by inventing that subplot where Batman disguises himself as a, a British detective. As a writer, gave me the challenge can I do British? A convincing British accent, okay in cold print uh, that compromised the story pretty badly, and my guess based only on experience with that world is that the people we were calling during the retreat did not bother. To ask their superiors if it was okay to do this. So for the guys in the real big offices, this was a bad shock to them. Batman's dead. <laughs> Batman is worth billions.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, this is in the midst of the of the movies, obviously, and and uh, I'm sure things were. I mean, sales certainly hadn't dropped, as as I understood it. Um, or maybe they did, I don't know. So what was your, do you mind revealing what your original story plan was? Were you planning to, after killing Batman, revive him, or did you want him to stay dead and have John Paul Valley or or Dick Grayson, someone else, taking over the mantle?
1: Well, We we live in the real world and I knew I would not get away with permanently killing Batman. But I thought I could get away with was having him off stage for a year. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was really what we were going to do. Batman goes off. I hadn't plotted it that far. One of the basic disagreements I had with my crew was they wanted to plot every beat at the retreats, and I wanted to get know what the big events for the next six months are and let's give our writers some elbow room to come up with better ideas. So, well, we're going to bring Bruce Wayne back, probably more or less as he was brought back eventually, though one of my freelance writers had some uh, uncharitable things to say about curing somebody by laying on of the hands. Uh, it's since been done on television, series. <laughs> But we, we were going. I was going to replace uh, Batman with Jean-Paul Valley for a year, and then maybe kill off Azrael, and uh, everything would be as it was. Uh, almost when we were almost at the end. Uh, They asked me to do Azrael as a hero and as a monthly book. Well again it was if I let somebody else do this, I'll never forgive myself. But he I he was conceived as a villain. Right. So we I don't know, I, I have very mixed feelings about the series. I think maybe the middle run, the middle third, was pretty weak and the rest of it was probably okay i I never read published material, and uh that's not an exception. They did do another asriel series and neglected to pay me for that, and I decided not to make a fuss about that wow. but uh yeah that's they are now they are now obligated to to pay us for ancillary use of stuff we've created which is a huge step forward from say 10 years ago.
0: That's great to hear and I know you mentioned that last time like they're using Leslie Tompkins in uh, Gotham and I'm glad that you're being compensated for that. Um I just talked to Jerry Ordway and he was telling me about uh, how uh, Supergirl was using uh, Cat Grant and that you know he was yeah. he was being compensated. So no, that's that's great to hear and god I mean geez, man the 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 additions to the Batman house, if you put it in architecture terms, that you made over these decades and stuff—absolutely, man. I hope you're getting paid, and I'm—I'm I'm glad to hear that it has gotten better. And I understand that, uh, as you told me in our, our last conversation, that uh, Howard Shakens' uh, lawyer has been pretty instrumental in kind of making all that stuff happen. Am I, am I correct? It-
1: yeah, he's a, a very good man. and a very, I mean, a very nice man and a very good lawyer. He, uh, good. When the need for a lawyer arose in my life, I, I had the indispensable Larry uh, call around. I said, see if you can find me who the best lawyer for comic books is. And he came up with Harris Miller, who was amazingly cooperative. And very generous. He could have charged me two or three times what he did. Um, So, yeah, Harris. I've had occasion to call him once or twice since. Uh, Well, in the novel, the, the hero of the novel was originally Captain Power. Yes, yes. And I had Harris. Look up Captain Power, and he said, Well, there are three Captain Powers who are actually under copyright. Probably nobody will make a fuss, but they could if they wanted to. So that's why we changed it. But Harris didn't, I mean, he just did that as a favor to me. Yeah, I can find that out. That's excellent. Yeah, man. Very cool. The really good news happens when we went to see Batman versus Superman. And uh, we looked at that. I, well, when I heard that they were making that, I thought, are they aware of what they've left themselves in for? <laughs> this is, I mean, these characters have never belonged in the same universe. It's a an accident of publishing history that they are yoked. But it's not a good idea because one guy, Juggle sons and one guy can bench press probably 500 pounds and swim real fast and stuff. But they, they're they not the same kind of character. The mythology is real different. But uh, we saw at the, at the beginning credits of that movie, Batman co-created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. So when we got home, we know or I know Bill Singer's granddaughter a little bit. I've, I've been on panels with her and I had her phone number. So Mary's name called her down when we got home and said, oh, "How how did you, then he never was able to put your grandfather's name on anything that had to do with Batman. Uh, it was this a one time only thing. And Althea said, no, we actually won. Finally won a lawsuit. And from now on, the name Bill Finger will be, any time you see the name Batman, you'll see Bill Finger. Bob Kane's name is still on it, and he had virtually nothing to do with the character as, as we know it. Mm-hmm. But at least Althea, I mean, Bill died, I, I'm told, broke and probably drinking too much. But uh, my one evening with him was very drunk. Wow! But uh, Althea, at least his granddaughter, will live comfortably. One of the when I went out to to visit the set, uh, one of the Time Warner executives told me that every time we do a Batman movie, I write a seven figure check for Bob Kane. Wow! Uh, so, like in the mid-50s, being paid for Batman probably didn't amount to much. But those movies have made billions with a B, of course. And a little, little surprise, little bonus, they're good movies.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Most of them. <laughs>
1: Certainly most of them. Did... Well, the last 30, I don't count. Joel Schumacher's
0: contribution. <laughs> just, I think a lot of fans agree with you on that. Did now Well apparently Joel agrees. Yeah, that's I heard him on Fresh Air, the NPR interview show. And he yeah, and he, uh, and he talked about having to create scenes, they would bring him a toy prototype and say we yeah. we need a scene like this in Batman and Robin. And I think that kind of obviously contributed to the goofiness. Of the of the Clooney movie certainly I, the the Kilmer movie also a little you know not as great as you know the two that uh, Tim Burton did but I I you know I thought I thought Val Kilmer did okay you know in spite of a lot of the zaniness and you've got Jim Carrey as the Riddler and man what a waste of Tommy Lee Jones what a, wouldn't it have been interesting I'm sure you agree to see him really get into the you know two faces literally of of Harvey Dent. And they and they well, you know,
1: apparently he was directed to play Two Face like like for Joker.
0: Wow. Wow.
1: I mean he play, he played in campus,
0: Yeah. Yeah. And they really barely got into that wonderful backstory of Harvey Dent, the district attorney that worked with Batman. And I even, even very quickly there was like a moment of clarity where Tommy Lee Jones is like, "You're right, Bruce." I you know he tries to appeal to Harvey, and and for a second Harvey's saying and talking to him. And it's like, oh, there's that relationship. But, you know, that was like 20 seconds. And, and, you know, (laughs) like I said, a a missed opportunity. So...
1: Yeah, and then the George Clooney one, the the best part of the script, which I thought was, at best, mediocre, was a a subplot which explains... uh, gives Bruce Wayne an out, he's been blaming himself for his parents' death, and he he gets a piece of information, and he's not responsible for it. It, He thought that he made his parents go to the theater that night, and it turns out that they delayed their theater sojourn for 24 hours, so it wasn't his fault at all. I might quarrel with that as a Batman storyteller, because I always thought that the symbolic avenging of the Wayne's death was part of the essence of the character. Nonetheless, that was a very well-written subplot that answered questions and they just cut it. Interesting. They left a couple of lines in that don't make any sense without a context to put them in. But, um, that is the movie biz.
0: I hear you man. I I wonder I I just and not to name drop but for context uh a couple months ago I had uh, a dinner with uh Mark Miller uh and we were talking about Superman and the question of is is Superman Kal-El of Krypton or is he Clark Kent that learns he's Kal-El of Krypton and grows up with the earth values and you know Clark is the man Superman is the guys uh and mark's uh, disagreement was no he is you know so smart being a kryptonian that it's like almost like being raised by a colony of ants in terms of the intellectual difference of a kryptonian and an earthman and i wondered regarding you know i'm sure you've been hit with this question before is is batman the real man is bruce wayne a guy's or is this a traumatized bruce wayne that you know is still you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, a guy trying to do good, but, you know, what what is your thought on the Batman versus Bruce Wayne guys?
1: Uh, I think Bruce Wayne died with his parents. mom and dad. Okay. And from then on, Batman, uh, Bruce allowed that tragedy to shape the life decisions he made. So from my, in my mind, I never got from any writer except myself the kind of Bruce Wayne I wanted. There has been, particularly with the movies, a tendency to make Bruce Wayne, you know, this very smart, ruthless tycoon guy. I think he should have been... Well, I had a real-life person that owned a magazine I freelanced for. A guy who was really a nice man, very inherited a vast fortune and kind of blew it by never being able to get his act together. Uh, My Bruce Wayne would be driving a Ferrari, but he'd have a dent in the front fender because he backed it into, uh, hit something the first time he took it out. And he was totally dependent on his assistance as I occasionally was to get things done Love life, I didn't think there would have been any room for a relationship. So in my private version, uh, Gotham City is full of debutantes who had one date with Bruce Wayne and said, Oh, he he got a headache. He took me home at 10 Uh, (laughs) o'clock. He just wasn't feeling well. I couldn't see him as a lover and the information I just got that he's he's making it with catwoman well <laughs> the dynamic with rush allu was he could never get it on with Talia though clearly they were the only two people on the planet who were ideal for each other but she had a daddy hang up and he had a criminal hang up and she was a criminal, so he could never do that. I thought that added attention to the continuity that, you know, helped the story along.
0: I understand. And and what did you think when uh there's a couple times when Steve Engelhart created Silver St. Cloud and we had the Laughing Fish story. You were you editing then or were you also No, I was uh, I was a
1: freelancer. Okay, yeah, I you think. guys were, were, were both writers of Batman. Okay, so and Steve convinced the powers of be that you know he he was a hot writer. I never paid attention to things like who's hot, or there there was a kind of picking order. If if you were the guy who wrote Superman, you were higher on the picking order than if you were the guy that wrote Power Man. Uh, but those things weren't part of some people's experience and when i finally took over editing the franchise i simply ignored silver saint cloud i thought it was a bad idea i didn't think that batman would fall in love with a debutante uh so you didn't we didn't have to write her out we could just ignore it was the same way with batman's child in that graphic novel of Mike Barr Son
0: of the Demon. I yeah. thought that was yeah. a
1: yeah, I thought that was a terrible idea in terms of Batman storytelling. But I didn't have to write it out. I could I explained to Mike we took a long walk around the lake in Hollywood, but I was not going to ever refer to that and this is nothing against you, Mike. It's in my editorial opinion it's not a good storytelling trope. I don't think Mike has ever forgiven me for that, but they have brought those characters back, and uh, that's now an official part of the continuity. That's right.
0: Yeah, Damien is it's, Yeah, Damian's part of the story now.
1: And you have to remember that there is no right or wrong in this. Oh, stuff.
0: sure. Absolutely, man.
1: Yeah, yeah. That was my opinion of how the story and the mythos should play out. Doesn't mean I was right or wrong. It was my opinion and it was working.
0: I understand. Absolutely, man. I I you know you're you're known for some of your guidelines if not rules for writing Batman and I know one of them and I imagine it might dovetail into what you were saying earlier about Superman. And I want to explore that for a second. But one thing I know that you said was you didn't like Batman in space and that you would kind of, you know, shy away from those stories and stuff as much as you could. Sometimes there was a big event and I suppose, you know, they, they expected the Batman comics to dovetail into an event, but it, it seemed again, I, I I only get my information from the fan magazines of the day, but it sounded like you weren't crazy about the idea of putting Batman in space.
1: I thought it was a terrible idea in the same way it was a terrible idea for Isner to put the spirit in space. They're not that kind of character. The mythos, the mythic underpinnings, for Batman, it's more Dracula than uh, Percival or any of the King Arthur's men. Okay. Uh, It... it, I don't think those guys were thinking about this stuff with the left side of their brains, but in a way, Batman is brilliant because we are fascinated by darkness and evil. Villains are almost always more interesting than heroes. Well, here you have that icon- iconography of the dark, and in every culture that I know about except Chinese, bats are symbols of evil or reincarnated souls or stuff like that. So you have that iconography, but he's on our side. He's a good guy. Mm -hmm. So you had your take and eat it. (laughs) Uh, Putting him in space makes it, what I think of as science fiction light, just not appropriate for the character as we were doing him then. It doesn't mean that somebody will come along and write a terrific Batman and Space Story. Sure. I if if it's happened, I haven't seen it.
0: <laughs> well and, and how often, again, based on what you said about the Batman Superman ideas that they were kind of conflicting universes in the in the same publishing house, um, how often did Superman show up in your Batman stories, if ever?
1: Only when there was a crossover. And I never resisted participating in the crossover because that was, you know, going in, it's not your ball and it's not your bat. And your daddy doesn't own the park. (laughs) Uh, Something that is like that, we had to participate in. uh, I was always able to contrive it so that Batman occupied a little distant corner of the story. And could do Batman like things and did not have to deal with ray guns and spaceships mm-hmm. and
0: aliens.
1: Uh, the Batman as a storytelling tool was flexible enough that we could get away with cheating like that once in a while, as long as I didn't have to do it every month.
0: Understood. And again, like, what about the interpersonal relationship with Superman? How did you tackle it when uh, it it necessitated a, a conversation between Clark and Bruce?
1: I didn't ever write that scene. I don't remember. Well, Miller kind of answered that. Sure. Uh, if I'm remembering my continuity, uh, Superman gives Batman a piece of kryptonite and says, if, if I ever go off the deep end, use this. I thought that was a good way to nod toward established continuity and still uh, do it with a logical story point. Uh, you know, I think that was John. So, I think
0: that was John Byrne in Man of Steel. Was that Byrne? Yeah, and I also wonder as John Byrne came in that that period, because obviously you had Frank writing Batman, Batman Year One, and certainly before it, The Dark Knight Returns. That was, you know, such a great uh, elevate, you know, ev- evolution of the character. And in in the meantime, Byrne was doing his thing with Man of Steel, and and you know, obviously rebooting Superman and kind of changing things around, stripping away a lot of that uh, Mort Weisinger era and even Julie Schwartz era, obviously. Um, so, how did you know when when there was this newer Superman? Did you you know did did the character change? At all for you, from an editorial standpoint or or a writing standpoint?
1: Yeah, uh, excuse me. Ah,
0: water. Oh yeah, by all means, yeah, Teddy. Um, and by the way, you you know we've already gone an hour. Like, am I am am I taxing you? I I don't want to, you know. I...
1: Yeah, you're not. Uh, I have nothing to do until tomorrow <laughs> at two. So well, I I'm enjoying the conversation, so please continue. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I resisted being involved with Superman when that first arose. And my problem was basically what we do is fantasy melodrama. The essence of melodrama is conflict. You have to have a worthy opponent for your hero. Uh, To have Superman go after pickpockets would be ludicrous. Well, well, uh, how do you keep contriving a problem for Superman to solve? I mean, I did the Justice League for about a year and a half. Absolutely. And that's where that problem arose. When I did my fourth or fifth alien invasion, I realized this: my creative tank is empty as far as this, this character is concerned. Later, writers did a much better job than I did of, Making it make sense and, and getting good stories out of it. But yeah, they, they, to my mind, they did not belong in the same story. And if you, if you have Superman, it depends on which era, but at his most powerful, he was God. He was juggling sons. He was able to search every room in Metropolis in a, a second or so. But how do you put that character in in a believable conflict? He can do anything, <laughs> so why doesn't he solve whatever problem it is in the second panel? You had to contrive answers to that if you were going to be consistent with the character. Back in the forties when they were creating this stuff, they didn't worry about that, and they shouldn't have. I mean, it was not part of the problem they had to solve. A lot of them, well, Jerry, you mentioned Jerry before, who became a pretty close friend of mine toward the end of his life. Jerry Siegel. Great guy. And he did occasional script changes when he was, you know, a very young guy doing comics. But that was okay because nobody knew how to write comic books back then. And I, the mistake I, I most often ran into when I was teaching was people ask things of the artist they can't deliver. Uh, so Jerry had a natural gift as a storyteller and he was a very good artist. And, if some writer who had never written a comic book before, uh, asked for something that couldn't be accommodated in that very limited and artificial, uh, storytelling tool that was the comic book, uh, Jerry could change it. I think that I've, I've been rewritten a few times. I deeply, deeply resent it. Uh, it's one of the reasons I don't, uh, I don't read published work and I, I made one horrible life mistake within the past year. I watched myself on television. I watched the public. I don't normally do that because I don't like the way I look. Uh, but I watched the, public television thing yes. and that was a terrible mistake on my part because it was <laughs> apparently I didn't have much to do with Green Lantern and Green Arrow apparently the artist uh, wanted to draw a Green Lantern so he got Julie Schwartz too and then, then then, he wrote a script Wow! no, Denny wrote the script a long time before the artist was involved Denny thought the script was going to be done by Gil Kane but it's nothing to get lathery
0: about, but it is annoying. Well, let's set the record straight. Let's talk about that Green Lantern Green Arrow run. Because I and it's I uh I was thinking about how Siegel and Schuster, very early on in Superman, really had Superman attacking social justice issues. And I know there was a very early issue where yeah, yeah. He cleaned out a slum and really kind of improved it. And you know, went after an evil mine owner, a capitalist. Yes, and of course, yeah, the famous radio story of him going after the clan and and things like that. So,
1: and they and also on the radio, an anti-Semitic
0: story. Yes, very much so. Yes, so so yeah. Tell me, like, was the first Green Lantern Green Arrow story about where that classic scene happens, where? The elderly black gentleman says, hey, you, saw, you know, you save the orange skins, you save the purple skins. What are, you, what are you doing for the black skins here on Earth?
1: No, that was, Neil did not only serve the script, but I thought that's among the, the three best panels ever in the history of comics. And one of the things that absolutely delights me is my favorite politician who turns out to be a huge comics fan and the only person I know who ever read all of Philip K. Dick, uh, he used that as a campaign thing. He rewrote the dial.
0: Wow,
1: cool. The guy's name is Alan Grayson. He is a Democratic congressman up for, currently up for re-election uh, from Florida. And I got this, Mary got took a phone call, and she said, "There's this uh, congressman who wants to know if he can have, buy a coffee or a drink or something." And I thought, "Well, okay, he probably wants my help with because he's going to do a campaign comic book." So I arranged to meet the guy, and uh, no, nope, we didn't talk about politics. We talked about comic books. <laughs> I gave him a five-minute crash course in visual narrative and in static images. And then he told me, we got on Philip K. Dick, and he told me that he had read all of Philip K. Dick's exegesis. I think that's something like 5,000 pages. And I don't know anybody else who even tried to do that. Very cool.
0: I'm looking him up. I want to make sure. I think this is... I think I know Alan Grayson. I think he's... uh Made himself known at times.
1: Um, in uh... well, he's yes. He doesn't take corporate money. He's he's the real deal, as far as I can tell. Yes, I'm. Look- I don't looking yeah. think it's possible to be a major politician and remain uncorrupted. But he's been on my radar for a few years now, and I I get two or three mailings, emails from him in a week. Uh, he looks like the real deal. As I said, he grew up in the Bronx. He was a street kid.
0: Well, he seems to have been a strong, as I remember seeing video clips of him, I know he was a strong proponent for, you know, better health care and uh, certainly was complaining about the Republicans' answer. And I remember a famous quote of his of, you know, the, the, Republican solution is you get sick, you don't get health care, and you die. And that's how they, they solve yeah. health care issues. So, no, I know exactly what you're talking about. And um, isn't it always great when you learn uh, various people who are comic book people? And I, I, I certainly get a kick out of it when I when I hear not only celebrities, but also, again, yeah. Brad Meltzer, I forget which um, specific politician had uh, Green Arrow in his office and uh, as he was getting started with his uh, Green Arrow run. Uh, refer to uh, I think a, I believe he was a governor, and and you know and it certainly wasn't Jeb Bush. That's his local <laughs> governor down in Florida. But uh, no, that's great. And I um well and I wanted to know. So when you when you suggested these stories to Julie Sh- Schwartz, I'm assuming and and you you guys were kind of putting more social justice in these stories. Was there a concern? Was there like, hey, we don't want to you know we're telling stories for twelve year olds. Why, why you know what are you doing? putting uh, putting these kinds of issues in stories.
1: I wondered the same thing, so I talked to Julie a lot for the last year of his life. I talked to him every Thursday morning. <clears throat> I was going in to teach class and he was coming in and would walk up and down the halls, and stick his head in open doors and say, what are you doing to editors? So I don't think Julie bothered to ask permission. I once asked him, well, the conventional wisdom in the 40s and 50s was you can't have continued stories because the newsstand distribution was so erratic that because I got Detective 45, that doesn't mean I will be able to get Detective 46. Yes, yes. And yet he did a continued story once a year. And uh, I said, how did you get away with that? And he said, I, I didn't ask, but nobody ever said anything. <laughs> I think with Green Lantern and Green Arrow, he didn't see any need to share what we were doing with anyone. And so, yeah, I mean, it, the genesis of that was my, my weekly visit to D.C. And I do a terrible Julie Schwartz little uh well, my boy, what have you got? <laughs> and uh, he was a very abunctual editor. And I had done a couple of things, one of them for him with uh, social concerns near the center of the story. And I wanted to do more. I was genuinely concerned with what was going on in the world so he said that they wanted to, he personally, I think, wanted to continue publishing Green Lantern. The science fiction elements of it must have appealed to him. Sure. But uh, the sales did not justify continual publication, so he, he pretty much gave me a blank slate. I told him an idea or two I had and then I went home and wrote the story. And then I wrote another one and another one. And at that point, the first one was on the newsstand. And we got noticed by reporters. I, the first story that appeared was in the Village Voice, a counterculture newspaper from Greenwich Village that I, was on my must-reading list.
0: I hear you. Me too.
1: <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was founded by Norman Mailer in in a bar I used to frequent. Anyway, uh, uh, I think that somebody at The Voice saw this and thought there might be a story there and called the number that was in the telephone book for DC Comics. Maybe got a receptionist or an assistant editor somebody who didn't know what we were doing because Julie wasn't mentioned in the village voice piece, nor was I, nor was Neil. And I think they didn't know what they were doing. That changed rapidly and drastically. And we found ourselves, I found myself being interviewed by Parisian television. That was an experience not many people have had. Uh, and we got invited to universities, and we were something respectable. But I think that that came as a surprise to the people in the big office, because comic books, you know, we don't have, I, I, don't, I doubt that they read it. One of the real pluses in the Paul Levitt column is he did read this stuff, and he had opinions about it. But uh, I don't think any of the executives bothered. And so this came as a surprise to them, but it came as a surprise that came with an endorsement from the mayor of New York City, among other people. So they saw a bandwagon they could hop on, and uh, uh, that mayor eventually wrote a text piece for us. He was the last liberal Republican mayor was that in the United States was that
0: John Lindsay? John Hunt Lindsay. Yeah. John Lindsay, yeah. Yeah, no, I remember. Yeah. yeah. And I and I've certainly seen my share of video of of Mary Lindsay and everything. And of course, kind of uh uh Batman uh, television fans might know that there was a parody of him in uh the television show as well. Uh, Marilyn Seed, I believe was how he was called, but you kind of, if you if you knew your your history of politics, you knew who they were talking about back then. That's cool. And also, I remember your your amazing issue of uh, Green Lantern Green Arrow, where clearly, as at least from an artist standpoint, it was uh, Spiro Agnew in the store in the story, and there was a little girl that that had a face very much like Richard Nixon's face.
1: Yeah, and therein there lies another sore point. Um... Because I didn't know that that cover was going to be done. The problem with it was that had nothing to do with the story. It had nothing to do with the continuity. You could certainly attack Agnew and Nixon. Though at least one of my freelancers, who's a conservative, said he found it offensive. Interesting. But at the time, I thought it was so obvious that these guys are crooks and corrupt. uh, There won't be any problem with this. Well, there are people who think that Nixon was a great president. Yeah. But I resented that because what did it have to do with anything? It, It didn't make any political comment of its own, and it had nothing to do with the story. Interesting. Occasionally, Julie. Well, Julie would let things get by that I couldn't understand why he did. That was an example. I don't know that I would have okayed that cover had I been editing the thing at the time.
0: I understood. No, I understand. Is um, you know, uh, I, well, I I I did want to ask you how how you initially got the Batman writing job. And I don't know if we've ever talked about that. And I'm sure you've told the story a million times, but if you don't mind, I'd love to hear it.
1: Uh, No, I don't mind. I was working for and Stanley as an editorial assistant, and then he fired me on what was probably the worst day of my life. I had a a small baby, you know, a, a child who was still being breastfed, uh, and no money, and it was in the middle of a newspaper strike where my saleable skills were a good on the market. And uh, New York City, we didn't have any relatives. We didn't have any support system, and I wasn't didn't have any savings. And suddenly, 10 o'clock of a, of a weekday morning, I'm without a job. So uh, I... Had socialized in the comic book world by then, and Steve States knew about Charlton Comics. Yes. And uh, Dick Giordano came in once a week and sat in an office on Fifth Avenue that they rented empty room really with a desk and a couple of chairs and he talked to the local freelancers so i went up and i saw him on one of those days and he gave me a job that i did pretty well and then i i did my first socially conscious story for him that was called children of doom and it was a pacifist oriented story jim apparel drew that am i right no, it was. Uh, oh, I thought he did. It was a strange. Uh, <sighs> I can't think of the guy's name. His day job was a cop.
0: Oh, Joe. Um, or no, uh, uh Pete. Pete Morrissey.
1: Pete Morrissey. Yeah. yeah, it was a a hurry up job that had to be done in four days. Oh man, you know I love. So I. I mean, I did, Dick called me. Some they had something scheduled for that. I mean. Like, the rights to what they were going to publish fell through. I don't have any particulars. But he suddenly had a big hole in his schedule, and he needed something in a week, and it didn't make any difference what it was. So he called me and said, you know, can you have me a script by Thursday? And I said, yeah, I guess. (laughs) So I wrote that because it's what I wanted to write. And uh, it went to Artists who were also under terrible time pressure, but I think that worked for the work they did. I think the, the story came off well because nobody had time to, to have any second thoughts about anything. There is something to be said for deadlines, and that's part of it right there. You don't have time to, you know, stick your head up your ass yeah. and, and worry about things.
0: Agreed. Well, and and I got it for a second uh, as a tangent. I am fascinated by Pete Morrissey's work, both as a writer and an artist, because he was cranking out. It seemed like seventy five percent of Charlton's output. And like you said, he by day he was a cop, and by night he was writing these stories and drawing these stories. And I love Peter Cannon Thunderbolt, and uh, I want to say Vengeance Squad was one of his throwaway charlton things that you know managed to you know they cranked up maybe six issues and just the whole i mean god we could spend two hours just talking about charlton and and uh the powers that be in derby connecticut and why why the comics were made and what their main business was but that we'll we'll do that another day but uh so go on so you you're you know you're doing this this sci-fi story for uh uh for for charlton so then with for
1: jake G- um I'm doing a lot of stuff for Dick, and I was a model of reliability. I did not blow a deadline. Much later, Dick and I socially talked about that, and I was always afraid if I blow this deadline, I will never get another job from this editor and maybe not from this genre. And Dick said he had the same problem. He was afraid to miss deadlines, so he never did. He got up at five, worked till eight, and then took a train in to be a editor-in-chief. Anyway, after about a year of that, uh, I walked in there one day and Dick said, how would you like to do exactly what you're doing now at three times the money? <laughs> Okay, that was a very persuasive argument for a guy who, had at that time, Larry was maybe a year and a half old, and we were living in a ghetto, and Anne did not have saleable skills. She was a philosophy major. I'm very proud of her now because she's become an, uh, an environmental activist. Oh, wow. But at the time, sure. And what had happened was, Dick had been hired by DC, and part of the deal was he could bring some of his Charlton people with him. One of those was Steve Ditko. uh, Skates and myself were the two writers. And uh, so, yeah, suddenly I was getting $12 a page instead of $4 a page. Years and years later, I got the whole story that I didn't know at the time, and thank God. But I was writing a text piece for Superman's 50th anniversary for a hardcover publisher in the Midwest. And one of the people I interviewed was Paul Levitz, who told me how I came to work for DC Comics. I don't know what Steve was thinking about, and I haven't seen him in years. But I was thinking, well, these people at DC saw the great work that we're doing for Charlton and decided that, that, you know, they would bring us aboard. No, that wasn't even close to what happened. What happened was the guys who created comic books, uh, Gary Robinson was one of them, and, uh, you know, that bunch of names that you occasionally saw in the comics. It was after the war, most of them had been veterans. They were solid citizens. They had families. They had mortgages. They were eminently decent citizens. And they asked the company for a little help with health insurance. They weren't threatening job actions or anything, just hat in hand, can we please have some help with this? The company's response was to fire them. Oh, yeah, and with, you know, states and I were warm bodies. Uh, we could type. That's that's all they they knew about or cared about. So when Paul told me that story, I said, "You realize I'm I'm interviewing you in in, in a role as as a journalist, and you just told me something that makes the company look really bad." And he said, no, put it in print because it'll tell everybody how far we've come. Wow. Well, we've come much further than that since I wrote that piece. But I came to work for D.C. not because of any virtue I had as either a professional or as a writer, because I needed one bodies. Wow. It was as simple as that. Jeez. And I know, uh, you, like, you... that was the comic book business then, and to some degree, that was the TV business. Writers were going to get screwed. Yeah, jeez. Yeah, and we've we've t- you. We never did what what TV and movie people did was put together a really good union. I still get mailings from them, and I've been a member emeritus for about ten years. But any time anything of mine is shown at 3 a.m. in Addis Ababa, they will see that I get whatever money is coming.
0: That's great, man. No, I understand. The Writers Guild and certainly uh, about 10 years ago when uh, the idea of Netflix and streaming TV was just getting started and even the DVD re-releases of television and film I'm glad the Writers Guild was able to step up and, you know, get get better compensation. I don't know if, as usual with a, a union and, and bosses compromise, nobody gets everything they really want, but I, I, I'm assuming that it's gotten better, and, and certainly, uh,
1: you know, well, yeah, you know better, I think. Well, Roy and Jerry have a story to tell which pretty much illustrates what you've been saying, uh, they did, wrote the last Conan movie, and they took it in, and they gave their, they pitched their story to Dino De Laurentiis, and he allowed us how, yeah, that was a good, good Conan story. They, they would get the job. What he did was give it to a writer he had under contract. That guy did the actual shooting script using Jerry and Roy's story. And Jerry and Roy got nothing. Wow! And the other guy's name went on. That was very common. It was even done in comic books. In the Superman office, I didn't have any firsthand experience with it, but you heard stories. Uh, and that editor was considered his mentor, which I find interesting. But um,
0: was that was uh, that more was that more Weisinger? Forgive me for na- putting a name on it.
1: Yeah, I would rather not use proper names, but yeah. Okay, all right. He, <laughs> I understand. And he wasn't the only one. There were there was one guy who, at Christmas time, gave to all of his freelancers uh, copies of his suit and shirt and shoe and necktie preferences. So the idea was, you're going to give me a, an expensive Christmas gift. Wow! Oh my God! Whatever. Whatever Jim Shooter's problems were with with him, it was exactly the opposite. He gave us nice gifts.
0: Well that's good. I'm glad I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Now, we mentioned a couple of names and actually while we're talking about him, uh when you went to Marvel, what was what was that what was the impetus for you leaving D C and going to Marvel?
1: Uh, I was writing a book on the history of comics for Scholastic Press, and I interviewed everybody I could think of to interview. One of them was Jim Shooter, who was brand new at that job, and he offered me, you know, a, a, a job. Now, at that point, I was writing a lot, and I thought I was up to my capacity I couldn't do any more without compromising the work. I, I don't know if that was true or not. We'll never know. But I was looking for some way to earn a living that did not depend on talent, but on, you know, thinking about things. Obviously, editorial work was that. I went to my bosses at D.C., and presented them with the problem. i got a kid who's starting school. I have expenses I didn't used to have. Their answer was to give me more writing work. Jim Shooter's answer was to give me a writer-editor deal. Uh, and a raise. <laughs> so, of course, I, with, with apologies to D.C., I uh, I took the offer. And for two years, he was the best boss I ever had. And I also had as an assistant Mark Broomwald. Oh, wow. Sure. Who was an enormous benefit to the comic book world.
0: Amen. Absolutely, man. Great writer. Absolutely.
1: He's gone 20 years now. Wow.
0: Hard to believe. (sighs) I know. Jeez, man. Oof. So... Um, you said, "All right." So, were you only at Marvel for those two years, or did things change? Did he, did did Jim leave, and then you had other? No,
1: I served, uh I went. I, I think I worked as a Marvel editor for seven years. Okay, yeah, that makes much. Toward look. the end, though, things were getting very uncomfortable, and I since that editor was not happy with me, and I didn't know why the frustrating part was the thing i tried worked at hardest was figuring out ways to please him uh so i would occasionally go to his office after hours and i'd say you know like i i think you're unhappy with me what can i do uh finally dick made his offer and i kept stalling him and then finally, uh, I decided I'd be a fool not to accept Shooter's job. So I, I remember I went out running through lower Manhattan that day. I was trying to run about five miles a day at the time. And I got back and there was a phone call. Anyway, I was hired by Shooter who said that there is no open crime alley. It was one of the best comic book stories and it was one of his favorites and I was the writer and uh, after a year of writing Spider-Man I got fired off that uh, I took over Iron Man this is something another thing I learned years later Jim did not like my Iron Man Interesting. it was getting praise from the world but not from him, and he tried to get Mark to fire me. And Mark stood up for me and put his own job in jeopardy once a month by refusing to do that and refusing to edit the stories to make them more what other people thought they ought to be. I did not have a whisper of any of that until Mike Carlin told me years later he was Mark's assistant at the time. I got to know Mark really well after that, but, uh, he was a real, uh, he was a creative guys editor. And eventually I kept being, getting calls from Dick Giordano saying, why, you know, have you decided to come to work for me yet? <laughs> and, uh, I was having a tough time with Jim, so I went to his boss and said, I've been offered a job at D.C., and right now I'm, I'm thinking of taking it. Uh, would you like to react to that? And he said, is is a problem, your boss? And I said, yeah. And he said, okay, you and I and he will have, this was a Monday, lunch on Thursday, I will make peace between you guys because we don't want to lose you. So Tuesday, we had a day-long editorial conference. Wednesday, I went into work, and Schroeder walked into my office at 10 and said, we have to part company. He was firing me. I said, okay, uh, what reason are you going to give the world for this action you're taking? He said, well, uh, we asked to change something. And it was Jim's idea, not mine. And I didn't take credit or blame for it. And in Jim's opinion, I should have. So I said, yeah, that's true. I didn't agree with the change. And I I didn't didn't tell John that it was mine. So uh, I took Leave and then I called Dick and said, I'm ready to go to work for you. He said, Well, you waited too long. We hired somebody oh, else. Jesus. So for three weeks, I was freelance. Oh, my God. <laughs> that was my goal that they hired. Oh, sure. Yeah. And then right after New Year's, right after the holidays, uh, I got a call from Dick saying, You start work on Monday afternoon, be here by 12, and uh, welcome aboard. Wow.
0: I, you know, honestly, man, hearing these things, it's amazing, and again, I was reading the fan magazines back then, Amazing Heroes and uh, Comics Interview and Comics Journal and everything, and yeah, you know, I mean, that's those were our, our news sources. When you were doing your interviews for Scholastic, I'm curious, uh, this opens a new question, did you tape record them? Did you, I, I mean, obviously, I know you're a journalist, and I'm sure you're used to just doing an interview with a notepad. But how how did you transcribe these interviews?
1: Oh, I was uh, very conscientious. I did tape record everything. I mean, the best job I had at that period as a magazine writer was interviewing Alfred Bester. Wow. It was the best afternoon I ever had working. I, I He was at a party. I, I was kind of social back then. And there was a party in Greenwich Village, and uh, I was a kind of village guy. So I went, and that was Alfred Pester standing across the room. I, I can't go talk to him. He is a god. He is my favorite science fiction writer. So I didn't talk to him. But Roy gave me an assignment to interview him for their black-and-white SF magazine a week later. And I, he was living on, like, 60th and Madison. And he was everything you want a writer to be if you don't know any writers. Funny, kind, erudite. So uh, lots and lots of information. Yeah, who me uh and you know i I have a couple of vermens with him later, but uh that was just an absolutely flat out wonderful afternoon uh, I don't know how I got off on that, oh, but that yeah, was no, that was
0: yeah
1: I still like doing journalism because it was such a nice change from doing comics, I understand. So I didn't refuse any of those kind of jobs. I didn't refuse the offer to write a book for Scholastic.
0: Did you Did you hang onto those tapes, or did you, you know, after it was done?
1: No, uh, God knows where they went. I have moved about fourteen sure. times since then. <laughs> I and. <laughs> One of the reasons I'm not moving out of this house, although I'm now living here alone, is there are so goddamn many books <laughs> and tapes and videos and courses and thousands of comic books. Sure,
0: I bet. Def-
1: it's going to be a nightmare whoever, for whoever gets stuck doing that after I cash in my I, chips. Oh if that's how I cash in my I chips. Understand. I understand. Well.
0: I've been
1: dead once and you know, you were de- nothing to it. You were dead once, you say? Yeah, about 15 years ago, I was having lunch with Mia Wolf. Probably you don't know the name. She has a connection to comics. But we were, and her 12-year-old son, Virgil, were in a, a Mexican restaurant in a nearby town. And according to Mia, I was talking about my not, my, I don't believe in an afterlife. And she said that you fell off the chair. And I thought you were trying to be funny. Oh my gosh. So I didn't do anything. And after a couple of minutes, I looked over and you had turned green. So wow. she yelled for help. Uh, the guy who owned the restaurant was also a fireman. So he knew where there was a defibrillator next door in City Hall. He got that on the third try. He got my heart beating. I was clinically dead for. Five to ten minutes, Ah, I guess. Nobody was keeping track, and uh, by that time, the medics had arrived, and they they had great toys for bringing me back to life. (laughs) So they did, and I went to hospitals, and then had open heart surgery about a week later. Wow! You know, I do remember when.
0: Yeah, I remember when you were recovering from your your heart surgery. Wow.
1: Oh my. Danny, I can- yeah, now all four of my brothers have had the same operation. It's obviously genetics. Jeez,
0: man. Well, you know, all these like near-death experiences that you've had. This is this is incredible. I I uh, you know, I'm glad that I'm glad you made it to the other, you know, that you're able to come walk away from them. I'm sure slowly, but I'm I'm glad that, you know, jeez, I I don't I don't know what else to say. That's insane. And I'm sorry.
1: Well, I- I can say that on the plus side I have not had a dull or boring life. <laughs> and I'm I'm really grateful for that. I'm really grateful for the last fifteen years of being a comic book editor because gee whiz, Mary Fran and I went to fucking Australia for heaven's That's sake. Fantastic. I would never have even thought to go there. Uh We got introduced to the president of Chile. We uh, had lunch in the Senate dining room. It's been such an interesting life. B.C., I mean, the Time Warner, stayed out of my face, except for that one story I told you where I had to bring Batman back to where I prematurely. But I worked with great people. Uh, I had the best toy you could give a storyteller. Batman is a great storytelling tool, and I could pretty much tell the stories I wanted to tell. It was a great gift to give to a, a, somebody whose primary mission in life has been telling stories. Um, so, yeah, I, I, it has been a tough life. Here and there, but I wouldn't change a second of it. I understand because wow, what a great! And toward the end, there was money attached. When I went to work in comics, I I wasn't—I was making enough to cover expenses, you know, rent and food. Toward the end, we had royalties. We had ancillary payments. Uh, It got to be. A very good job as jobs go it was hard sometimes there were bad bad weeks bad months but that's true of any job so, i didn't work anywhere near as hard as my father did running a grocery store
0: understood uh, my dad owned my dad ran a restaurant i totally understand and i, f- I feel the same way and no and again I'm, I'm, that's great and not surprising because again your body of work has been beloved for all these decades and Again, what what you what you put into Batman in particular, yeah. I mean, the, the again, we're all, we're they're all following in your footsteps, Denny, and I and, and I, I I say that because it's true. And and also, I'm I'm interested when you came back, and also after you you got sober. Um, am I right in the in the uh, time frame you wrote? Um, Venom, the original uh, Legends of the Dark Knight story that introduced the drug that later became the basis for Bane. But that, but yeah. that, that story of Bruce, of Bruce Wayne really kind of finding this way to uh, at least initially think, Oh my God, this is an improvement. I can be a better Batman through the help of chemicals. Tell me, tell me about that story and how, oh, how
1: well, I would, I would not have written it if I hadn't had my own experience with alcoholism, but, the genesis of the story is my waking up one day and realizing nobody ever takes the first drink thinking, well, I'm going to completely fuck up my life. I'm going to ruin my marriage. I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to end up in a gutter. Yeah, that's, that's, that's my agenda. Yes. We all, I couldn't talk to girls sober. I mean, alcohol allowed me to go to parties. And ask girls for dates, uh, for a long time. That was, it was a very useful social tool. Now there comes the day when a corner is turned and suddenly it's not a tool anymore, it's something you have to have. Then you've got problems and you never know. Um, uh, Annie, my wife matched me drink for drink back then, but she didn't have to have it. When it was appropriate to stop drinking, she stopped. When it was appropriate to stop drinking, I continued until the bottle was empty. Yeah. So you never know ahead of time. I Both sides of the family are riddled with bad alcoholics. Uh, I didn't know that. So one of the things I told my son early on was I did an eighth step with him, Uh you're supposed to admit to talk to the people who were harmed by your drinking and confess your sins to them. I figured the two people most harmed were Jeannie Thomas and Larry O'Neill, and I talked to both of them. Uh, And that's that's a good strategy. You face the demons. But uh, the genesis of that story was exactly that. If I take this drug whatever it is, I can be a better version of what I am. And it's true for a while, usually. Then comes
0: the bad yeah. times. No, it was it was an incredible story. It's it's really, I think, a very powerful one. And I, I love the evolution of this storytelling. And I wanted to know your opinion of this, if this was a conscious decision, because the prior decades to when you guys started being more socially aware but also really getting into character um i really think obviously just elevated the the whole comic book medium as far as the superhero genre goes because now we were seeing the flaws in these characters and you know dave michelini did it with with iron man with demon in a bottle or
1: yeah
0: know, i know yeah, for yeah that. And, well yeah. and that's i mean those kinds of those kinds of moves and certainly venom is is a, is a great personal Bruce story where he had, you know, I mean, that's, I I just think that's great rather than smash through the wall. Like my, my Superman uh, trope and don't get me wrong. It still works. But that classic, like George Reeves moment, he crashes through the wall, the, the gangsters shoot at him, bullets bounce off. He clunks their heads and he flies them off to jail. And that's the, you know, that's the end of the story or the Batman equivalent. And it's like, no, I, I, you appreciate when they have doubts Frank did it as well, Miller, in, in Dark Knight Returns, and these characters become more three-dimensional. So was that one of your goals as you were writing uh, comics, even going back to you know those times in the 70s?
1: Well, here's a big advantage I had that my predecessors didn't. I went into it after Stan Lee created Marvel, and what he did to create Marvel, as much as anything was to change the writing. Uh, everybody was still in the shadow of Frederick Wortham and comic book guys were afraid to even use slang. Uh, Stan pretty deliberately decided to ignore that stuff. He wrote witty, self-deprecating, self-satirical stories. Uh, I was, by that time, A Navy veteran, and I taught in ghetto schools, and uh, I thought of myself as pretty sophisticated. But Stan's approach gave me permission. He's not taking it seriously, therefore I can read this, because I won't take it seriously either. I think what I was really responding to was the stories. But my excuse was, well, he's got these witty captions that are making fun of the whole Marvel thing, so... Yeah, so I had that going for me, that Stan had found a new way to approach the writing of comic book stories. And at about the same time, Julie Schwartz had reinvented the other half of it, the half it does with origin stories and plots. He called on his science fiction background. It served him well. And between the two of them, they reinvented superheroes within a year or so of each other. So I came in as did Roy and Steve without any need to pay a lot of attention to a lot of stupid (laughs) rules that really didn't serve any purpose. And uh, it was okay for me to do characters because Stan was doing characters. He had you know, broken and opened the path, and uh, it didn't occur to me not to write the stories as wittily as I could.
0: Well, that's good. I mean, again, I, I it it blew my little mind. Uh, you know, as a as a you know ten year old something, and then into my tween years in the early seventies, and always really appreciated your writing, Carrie Bates writing. Uh, Marty Pasco and, and
1: El- Oh Terry was the great un, unsung hero. I mean, for eleven years he found a new way to use super speed. That alone would <laughs> would put him in my pantheon. Agreed.
0: Agre- and I always loved his Superman stories too. I always felt he really had a great handle on on uh, on, on telling great Superman stories. And Elliot Magan as well. And I know he's one of your uh, disciples and certainly followed your example with Green Arrow uh, years after your your guys' run. Um, yeah, I, I just I no, I really you guys were my original storytellers, and I and truly I followed I followed your stuff very carefully and and appreciated what you guys were doing and and felt like you know again I was reading you know, important stories when I read the hundred page Spectaculars or eighty page giants and they would have the reprints of the older stuff. I still appreciated those, because I think I was young enough to still do it, and I'm glad I read those.
1: Well, yeah, they were what they were. Uh, It's been a long and fairly fast evolution from people who have done nothing but write pulp stories suddenly are doing comic books, and they don't. I think Jerry Schuster, uh, Joe Siegel... And uh, Bill Finger had a sense of what a comic book was, what this kind of narration was. But most of the guys were really making it up as they went along. And it wasn't supposed to be good because the, the bosses had no respect for you know, the work that was being done. They got real rich because of that work, but they, did, they didn't find any need to share any of that. Health insurance? No, you're fired. Yeah. Uh,
0: Jeez. How about uh, Jeanette Kahn, when she came over? Did you Did you
1: have many interactions? Oh, well, she was a breath of fresh air. She was... Uh, her predecessor was a guy who was not, even though he would deny this now, was not a businessman, and he got the job as the big boss I think because what became Time Warner bought the company and they didn't know anything about it, but they had flow charts and that sort of thing. And on paper, he was the highest ranking member of the editorial department. So he kind of got the job. I think that way. There's a lot of gossip that went around about the particulars of that Uh I'm not going to retail any of that because I have no reason to believe it's true, okay. but he uh, he got walked into his office one day and he was escorted out of the building by security guys. I have never found out why, but it was was not just getting fired because that happened fairly often, and it was not that unusual, but he was not allowed to take anything out of his office, as far as I know. I know for a certainty he was escorted onto the street by guys. And then, here comes Jeanette Kahn, 23 years old. Uh, Rabbi's daughter had started two successful children's magazines already in her young life, and they gave her the job. And she learned on the job but she was well, it, the, the name of the company was National Periodicals Publications mm-hmm. and as Tom Wolf once said about the New York Times magazine, you think water buffalo is on the cover and dull stories and uh, your weekly dose of boredom <laughs> and along comes Jeanette and says, we shouldn't hide the fact that we should do comics, we should advertise it. So she had a giant jacket made for herself. At that time, Superman the movie was in the air. Jeanette's jacket said, Superman the comic book on the back (laughs) of it. And she she, I think she made mistakes, as anybody would, coming into a, a totally alien job. But she made us happy with what we did. She tried to give us a sense of pride that she tried to uh, bring this antiquated publishing venue into the 20th century. Uh, I think she was much more on the plus side than on the minus side. I think she now lives just a few blocks from my kid. My kid just moved to Harlem. And Jeanette has lived there about 10 years oh, wow. now. That's awesome. I'm really glad. It
0: seems like in the last couple of years, uh, people are learning more about her story and that she is getting her due for for changing things. And I'll tell you, man, again, that was in the midst of my reading, and uh, you felt the creative energy. And I and I really and I also read her original children's magazines, Dynamite, and I think Pizzazz was the other one. Mm-hmm. And yeah, those were those were coming to us in grade school through Scholastic. And they were great. And it doesn't surprise me. It is amazing to learn that she was 23 and taking over DC. That's really incredible. My God.
1: Yeah. Uh, She has now got her name on movie credits. Uh, And I I occasionally run into her very rarely. It's always a very cordial, pleasant meeting that's cool she has aged but haven't will
0: <laughs> I understand absolutely well again this is wow 40 you know really I guess 40 more than 40 years since she took over holy cow crazy Ugh. I yeah so, any, as, as uh, and, and honestly I appreciate your time I want I, I wondered if you had any uh, thoughts on we we lost a couple uh, big uh, you know geek culture Icons and uh Steve Ditko, you mentioned him earlier that and I know Charlton was the kind of business that likely freelancers didn't necessarily run into each other, but I wondered if you had any Steve well, Ditko no. memories or, or encounters that you wanted to share.
1: Well, I did not offer to eulogize Steve, though I had great respect for him. I mean, I am occasionally called on to do that, and it's generally something I'm happy to do. Uh, But we just so disagreed on so many things. Sure. Uh, I feel guilty about Steve, and I'll tell you why. Twice I took over characters that he created, and change them drastically, change them into things that he, he can't possibly have liked. Well, with the question, when Levitz asked me to do it, I said, you know, I can't write what, I, I can't do the kind of stories Steve is doing. And he said, do do the kind of stories you feel like doing. Well, that was kind of a slap in the face to Steve, though I didn't realize it. And Lenny Ween eventually said You were going to change it that much. Why didn't you simply create your own character? Interesting. It's a good question. Wow. Interesting. Uh, Yeah. The answer was that, well, I was used to doing assignments. This was something that the president of the company assigned to me. And so I did it as I had been doing for 40 years. But Steve was one of those vehement
0: Ayn Rand people.
1: I came back from the, one of the marches on the Pentagon, and I happened to run into him in the office the next day, and he was talking about how those hippies should have been machine guns, and I'm thinking, whoa, Jeez. I'd have been right in the line of fire. Wow, yeah. What? that's a, a problem I have with conservatives of any time. It's always about violence. Understood. Yeah. On the other hand, the, the progressives and liberals don't seem to know what they're doing. So.
0: <laughs> I share your frustration and do understand. And frankly, we did talk about 12 years ago in our first conversation about how you changed the question. You, But you did put it in the book that he had his near-death experience and came out of it a changed man. And I can also – did you ever have an, an opportunity to see him – after you, you started your run, and did you ever exchange words in, in, in you know, what you were doing with the character? No, I,
1: he was not a sociable man. And he sure. pretty much stuck to... Well, my dominant emotion about him, I guess, is pity, because he seemed to be so lonely and so isolated. He had his little cramped studio on 8th Avenue, And I think he lived mostly in a hotel. Wow. Uh, And was vehement about the Ayn Rand stuff. Yeah, yeah. Mr. A, there is no gray. There's only black and white. Uh, Those people remind me of of evangelical Christians. I'm right. There's no point in arguing this. I'm right, and you should die if you don't agree with me. Wow,
0: yeah, yeah. Jeez. and how about Harlan Ellison and another another pointy man? But man, I loved his stories, and and also you know as passionate as he was about his points of view, you could never you know he was never not entertaining at, at the very least.
1: <laughs> he was a miraculously good speaker. I once saw him hold an audience of three thousand people from midnight till three a.m. while a group, a uh, projector. Uh, Fixed at a convention. (laughs) The movie to be shown was The Boy and His Dog. Yeah, I've wondered about Harlan. I saw him in Atlanta about five years ago, and he gave me the Julie Schwartz Lifetime Achievement Award. It was very kind of cool to get that from Carl. And, uh, I hadn't spoken to him for ten years, and I didn't know what the problem was, if any. But he he ran across the stage when they read out my name as the winner of this award, and told the audience, "I haven't seen Danny talk to Danny in ten years." I'm thinking, "Yeah, it's because you <laughs> you disappeared." But uh, he he hugged me, and uh, the next day. We went out of his way to make sure that I got the seat next to his on the panel about Julie that we did. And, uh, I guess we're, we're, we were pretty close friends at one point. Um, when I needed work, he got it for me. Get out here in 48 hours. You could probably write a TV show. And I got out there in 48 hours and wrote the show. Wow. Uh, He's a man who I think his not inconsiderable talent as a writer was compromised by his great talent as a stand up comedian. <laughs> because you could get instant some gratification that way. Writing is a slow process, as I'm sure you know. And you have there's a part of you that has to want to close that door behind you for 20 to 30 hours a week. Uh, the last writing I know that Harlan did was in public, in a Fifth Avenue bookstore window. Yes. Go on. Yes. And uh, he did something similar in Los Angeles. Well, that's, that's okay. I'm, I really try hard not to be judgmental anymore. One of my great faults. But that's kind of showing loss <laughs> more than writing, and if you need that kind of stimulation, you have a problem. You have to look at not not pretend that's not there. Very interesting. Yeah. yeah no. so he he until age about age thirty five, he was a um, super talent, also a very good guy to get along with. He was a very good guy to hang out with. Very generous to me, and the. Uh, when I went out to write that CBS show, he had a secret room in his house that you got to by knowing which books on a bookshelf to move, <laughs> and then it opened. And that—that that was my bedroom for the time it took me to do that CBS show. That's job.
0: hilarious! A secret panel uh, led to your bedroom at Harlan's house. I, I've heard about that secret panel in that room. That's—that's that's amazing, Denny. I didn't know you wrote. Uh, television and and can you can you tell us some of the shows you wrote for?
1: Well, that one was uh, Logan's Run. Oh it yes, it never got broadcast oh. because the show got canceled. That I wrote ish, uh, episode thirteen. Okay. Uh they the show got canceled after about ten oh, yeah, episodes. Yeah, I remember so... as a kid
0: watching watching the television version of Logan's Run. Sure. But
1: I got suddenly at a a semi-wide hole in my schedule. I had nothing to write. I had no work to do. So I called Harlan, and I just quoted him a little while ago, if you can get out here in 48 hours, it's, it's not too late to get a job. So he... Let me in his car and one Sunday morning or one weekday morning, I went into a movie studio and I talked to the woman who was had been the story editor on Star Trek and the producer, and I walked out of there with an assignment and all the Star us Wow, was that
0: D.C. Fontana? Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, again, I you know the
1: backstory on that is that when I was kind of a hippie in St. Louis. I, I and two young women and a friend of mine who was in law school at the time rented a house and, you know, went went chipped in on the necessary things. And we were, if, if there was such a thing as a hippie in St. Louis at the time, we were probably it. And this guy named Mike Aylor passed through town he was a wandering intellectual, and he, when we were talking about books with him, he said, well, listen, you want to know a writer, Harlan Ellison? He, he he lays the truth on you so thick you can't stand it. And here's Mike Ehler talking about this guy we never heard of. So we got in my brother's car, and we went to the airport, because I knew their bookstore would be open, and Harlan had a book out and we all got it. So I knew who he was before I got to New York. Interesting. And one of the first parties we went to, uh, Annie, my wife, was was and I guess is quite beautiful. And so we were at a party and Harlan hit on her <laughs> and she said, No, I'm 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 married and he said, Well, that's all right, let's let's get out of here. <laughs> And she said, no, my Denny O'Neill is my husband. Well, I have had exchanged letters with her alone at that point. He said, oh, okay, well, introduce me to them. You know, <laughs> uh, we kind of stayed in touch after that. That's amazing.
0: That's fantastic. Jesus. Um, too much, man.
1: I worry about him a little bit because I haven't heard anything about him for about five years. And Harlan was a guy that you, if he was in town, you knew it. I understand. The young woman I'm having a phone conversation with tomorrow was going to, I was going to meet Harlan for dinner and a bunch of other people were coming. And I was hanging around with Carol. So I said, why don't you come to dinner? So, New York City was in the middle of a blizzard, and I was an hour late getting to the apartment that Harlan was in. So, for that hour, Carol had uh, Harlan had nothing to do at all but let Carol have both barrels of the charm. By the time I got her, this, uh, this educated, intellectual, funny woman was totally in his pocket. <laughs>
0: I understand, man. No, and as you say, quite a storyteller and quite a charmer all the way. Uh and I loved when he was on the sci-fi channel doing his little commentaries about what was going on in, in uh boy, everything. I mean I remember him commenting on when Marvel was near bankruptcy. And he was really just devastated by it and like you know, we're not going to, you know, Marvel might end up, you know, who knows DC might end up getting these characters and his speculation of what might happen at that point in the, in the late nineties. It was, uh, it was always interesting to hear his point well, of view.
1: Yeah. Comic books were a gift to him, I think, because it gave him a, a venue. Uh, I don't know why he didn't stick closer to science fiction because they loved him too, but, um, Uh, He became part of the comic book world, and for years, D.C. sent him, as they did me, everything they published. They stopped doing that a couple of years ago. Yes. But uh, his house was amazing. If you could just get an hour in Ellison's joint, (laughs) Uh, there was a lot of corners, and around every corner was something you didn't expect to see. That's amazing. That's great. A poster or a movie prop or something, and he had, of course, thousands of books and a very extensive comic book collection and a secret panel.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, man, too much. Last time we spoke, you said you were working on a current Batman project, uh, and uh, I and and by the way, if if this is something you don't want to uh, tease, we can I, I I'll stop and we can edit this, but I was. Curious, and I assume they're going to release it next year for the 80th anniversary of Batman.
1: Yeah, well, there's a lot of stuff coming up. The Thousands issue of Detective and uh, Batman currently thereafter. Yeah, no, I don't mind talking about what I did. I wrote a sequel, so there is no open Prime alley. Uh, but because the, the business has loosened up a lot, I got a chance to really write the story you might want to write. Batman is a jerk in this, and without Leslie, he would have done something he could never have forgiven himself for. All in the 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 cause of violence on the side of uh, righteousness. So. The kid who edited it said the, the little speech I gave Leslie about you think you're you're fighting you're you're working against violence you're actually promoting it because you can't solve a problem without hurting someone. Uh, those are things I might have put in the first story and I didn't think I'd get away with them then, but uh, I did now. I'm very happy with them. It's probably happier with that and the Christmas story than any comic book work I've done in years. We should also say something about my poor forlorn novel. Yes, of course. It's out there, I'm told. I have not as yet signed an autograph, but I have not ventured very far from this house. I'm debating whether or not to give a copy to Carol tomorrow. I don't give away my stuff, But the, there were two kids who came to the front door, and they knew my address, and they just called to say hello to me because they were comic fans, just out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, so I gave them I gave them a copy of. Uh, so I we, we should we should say that this is a novel that is about thirty percent autobiographical and is largely about comic books changed from a backwater, disreputable uh, trash genre to something that is taught in most of the major universities in the country. And you can get it from Amazon. Of course, you can get anything from Amazon. (laughs) But uh, I didn't take any ads out and everybody told me including chuck dixon who's had a lot of success doing amazon publishing that you have to you have to promote it well
0: well it's called it's called the, the perils of captain mighty and the redemption of danny the kid i've got i've got my i've got it on my uh my tablet uh you and larry were kind to uh send me the pdf of it and, uh, no, it's, it's, it's great, Denny. And again, we, we, we spoke about it uh, a few months ago, but I'm glad to, uh, mention it again. And also the fact that, as you say, you're going to have, uh, a handful of, uh, copies when you go to Terrificon next month in, in Connecticut. So, uh, a few people will be able to get it there, but it's on Amazon and you can, you can pick it up as well, digitally. Um, and yeah, I, I, it's, it's an incredible story and it's a very personal story. And, uh, and I am, uh, you know, again, as you said earlier, uh, it maybe went in a direction you weren't planning on going into, but I think uh, it it only makes you a much more interesting person to learn a lot of your backstory in the in this book.
1: Well, thank you, John. That that's very nice of you. I should uh, I should go relate to to the nice lady who's here to make sure I don't fall over and die.
0: I will let you go. And I- she- <laughs> yes. Uh, so I will talk to you again. Truly, I appreciate it, Danny. And I'm really looking forward to seeing you next month. And I will let you and Larry know when I put this out. But thank you very much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. You bet. A wonderful conversation with Danny O'Neill. Uh, very gracious with his time, as you heard. Literally uh, until his uh, caregiver came. To help him out, uh, <laughs> I'm slightly embarrassed by that, but that shows you what kind of mensch Denny is. I can't wait to uh, see him at Terrificon. Again, he'll be there Sunday only, August 19th at Mohegan Sun at Terrificon. I hope you have the opportunity to see him if you're in the tri-state area. Make the drive. It is so worth it. So many great uh, creators and celebrities are going to be at Terrificon. I'm very, very psyched. Yes, they're a sponsor. Yes, I'm doing panels at Terrificon. But I am telling you, one of the reasons why I was really excited to get involved with Mitch's show, is because of the incredible lineup that he has. And it's certified by my buddies, Art and Franco. And I know if uh, they're dealing with uh, the wonderful people at Terrificon, I know they're all good people. So very, very psyched. Less than two weeks away. I hope you'll be able to join me at Terrificon. I'll get into panels on the next episode of Word Balloon. But I can tell you right now, we're going to have a Robin panel on Sunday with Denny and Mike Barr And Pete Tomasi, so many interesting people that have had a chance to write the Robin character. And you consider the evolution of the character, not just Dick Grayson, but Jason Todd, Dick becoming Nightwing, Damian now part of the picture. So it's going to be a very interesting conversation, and I really look forward to doing it live and then presenting it here on Word Balloon. Thanks again, League of Word Balloon listeners, for your support via Patreon. Again, if you'd like to subscribe to Word Balloon, if you like what you hear, think of Word Balloon as your audio-only convention panel that never ends. And it actually goes longer than the 45 minutes we're usually allotted. So we get into some really interesting discussion and conversation about current and comic book history with our wonderful creators that we get to have here on Word Balloon. In the days ahead, can can I brag? Why not? Paul Kupperberg is coming up. Another great DC writer talking about uh, working in the Bronze Age and well into the 90s. Excellent stories. Man, we get into Vigilante, uh, one of the superheroes that, man, I don't know if this story could happen uh, in today's world. When we talk about it, uh, if you'll remember Adrian Chase, a true Vigilante, much like the Punisher, who wasn't afraid of killing, really had nowhere to go. And finally, they killed him. Suicide. Not just killed him by a policeman or a straight bullet or something like that. Vigilante killed himself in the pages of DC. Could they do that story today? I don't think so. Paul talks about that. We talk about his Superman run and a lot of other interesting stuff that I'm sure you're going to enjoy. His website is incredible, paulkupperberg.com. Joelle Jones coming up in the days ahead. The wonderful artist, the wonderful writer, who was such an important part of Tom King's Batman run leading up to the wedding. And now uh, doing wonderful work in the pages of Catwoman, issue 2 coming out in days. And we talk about her Catwoman run. We also talk about Lady Killer and a lot more aspects of Joelle's career. Brian Edward Hill, who is currently killing it on Detective. I loved his run on Postal as well for Top Cow. It's a pleasure to welcome Brian Edward Hill to Ward Balloon. Just a few of the great people that are coming in the days and weeks ahead, and then Terrificon comes up. We'll be bringing those panels, but that doesn't mean that uh, it's going to be nothing but Terrificon panels in the post-Terrificon Ward Balloon uh, era there at in late August and into September. I guarantee you, there will also still be new conversations as well with uh, current and past great creators. Very, very excited about what's coming up in August, September, right into October in New York Comic-Con. So keep it right here, and I hope you enjoy the content you're hearing on WordBalloon and at WordBalloon.com. Don't forget to tell your friends if you like the show. That's the best way you can help me out, is let a friend know, hey, if you like comic books, this is the podcast you need to be listening to. Thanks, everybody, as always, for your attention and support. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2018.